Hey, Podsters. Checking in to let you know that we tried a new recording setup um, for episode three, and it just did not work at all, and it the quality is just not great. We're so sorry about the episode quality, but we hope you enjoyed the actual content of the episode anyways. Welcome to Adventures in Podacy, a reflective road trip towards our wit's end. Pop in your favorite cassette tapes and come along for the ride as we discuss faith, culture, and all the ways we were bullied growing up in evangelicalism. Live and in person, the cast of Friends. Okay, um, and we're live. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Adventures in Podacy, a road trip to our little what's in, which we have traveled down today as we begin this podcast recording. One mic short, two mics above, last mics count, or last recordings count, and an hour late. Mm-hmm. And I have severe neck pain. <laughs> But we would like to welcome to the podcast a uh, friend of the podcast, friend of the Brown family, uh, Faith Lou. Hi, Faith. Hi. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing good. It's really awkward because me and Faith have to share a mic. <laughs> We're literally like three inches apart right now. Uh, Noah Barley, I promise I will not kiss your girlfriend. <laughs> um, but yeah, so welcome back to Adventures in Podesty, everyone. Claire, Emily. Hi. Everybody. Welcome. Cool. Cool. Oh, great. So, um, are yeah. We, are we going to recap our last podcast a little bit? Sure, we can. Uh, do you want to do that, Claire? Um, yeah. So, last podcast, we talked about purity culture. We got some great reviews rolling in for it, except everybody's too scared to admit they actually listened to the podcast in the podcast review section. Um, so, man up, kids, and do it. Give us five stars. We deserve it. Um, no, but seriously, if you listen to it, and if you listen to both episodes, um, for Jewels in Your Crown, um, don't quote me on that in heaven, please. <laughs> um, but yeah, are we all going to read a tweet? Is that what we're doing? I have one. I do. I'm not Emily. ready. I'm Emily like will go last. <laughs> searching Twitter. Uh, if you have your yeah. play, you can go first. Okay. So, uh, well, la- you want to give them a la- last yes. week's topic. Yeah. Well, we talked about purity culture last week, so we decided it'd be funny if we just gave, like, a funny tweet about purity culture. Um, and maybe we'll do this every episode. Maybe we won't. Mine is from someone named at Mother Kane on Twitter. I don't know who this person is. This just came up on my feed. It says, reject purity culture, embrace being feral in public. And I really like that because I think it really encapsulates um, my approach to um, to purity culture. Yeah, so mine is from Matthew Pierce, the evangelical <laughs> thought leader on Twitter. And it is, if you're a boy cow, it is basically impossible to have pure thoughts. Every time a girl cow walks by, you can see her udders. Very few girl cows practice modesty. And this is why God put the curse of the hamburger on them. No one talks about this in seminary. It's true. I was the girl cow. I'm still looking. (laughs) (laughs) You're in the wrong circles on Twitter. (laughs) No, I just, I don't know how to, my Twitter is kind of a dark place right now. I'll be honest. There's a lot going on. Yeah, it's not a good time to be on Twitter. If, If you have the app, I would recommend maybe deleting it for a while. No, I want to find one so bad. 
but uh would you like to just interject later in the podcast no i want to find out right now okay well uh wait can i can i read this one (laughs) sure okay this one is from someone named michaela and (laughs) i might only be a six on a good day but i'm a solid 10 at a gas station himself and if you listen to our last podcast you'll find a way to connect that to purity culture i trust your intelligence remember Mm -hmm. that time that old man stopped us emily at the gas station (laughs) and was like you girls are beautiful your eyes are like sunsets is there a way i could keep in touch with you (laughs) yes this isn't a pen pal program (laughs) this isn't write a felon or write a prison mate or whatever that program um today we decided to swing from one hard-hitting topic to another um maybe one a little more heady um and a little less um sexy (laughs) i think this is really sexy personally i would agree with that (laughs) Some people think it is quite sexy, but I'm not one of those. So today we're going to be talking about dispensationalism. And if you don't know what dispensationalism is, I hate to break it to you, but you are probably a dispensationalist, um, at least in some form or fashion. Um, But this is basically a school of thought, theology, that um, we're going to break down. And I'm not even going to begin to try and do it myself, Um, but... Uh, it very much defines how many Christians view the end times, how they view things like the nation of Israel, how they, what else would you say, Faith? Um, I would say, well, let me just go ahead and actually read a definition by someone okay, who perfect. is not Let's me, start with that. Um, which will probably help shed a little light on it. But um, the definition for dispensationalism that we'll use comes from the Gospel Coalition. Um, it's by a guy, I do not remember his first name, but his last name is Black, and he's actually written the book on dispensational theology. Um, and he says that dispensationalism is an evangelical theological system that addresses issues concerning the biblical covenants, Israel, the church, and end times. It also argues for a literal interpretation of Old Testament prophecies involving ethnic national Israel and the idea that the church is a New Testament entity that is distinct from Israel. Um, And there's a lot of things in that that we'll unpack as we move on. Yeah, we're going to unpack all of that perfectly, very (laughs) concisely. No rabbit trails. None at all. What are some of the distinct, so we've talked about like kind of some of the distinctives, but like, what do we think are the biggest ones? I don't know, like in our experience. The biggest like hallmarks of dispensationalism? Yeah. I mean, from layman's terms, I would say um, it's it's very much like a literal, and I think this is also a theological definition of it. It's very literal approach to defining or uh, interpreting scripture. If your theology is bad, do, or, do you still do we still have to call it a theology? Oh boy, <laughs> just kidding. No, yeah, I think that's true. A very like there will be a beast with X heads, mm-hmm. and it will be from X country, which is now this modern day country. Yes, very literal. Yeah. So with dispensational dispensationalism, um, one of the hallmarks is that they hold to a literal or grammatical historical hermeneutic, which is essentially a way of interpreting the Bible. Um, So all the prophecies in the Bible, all the apocalyptic literature, they would say that 
everything in there is a literal will like come true literally um so there's no room for allegory in that and they also assume um so for like revelation a literal time timetable for the end times i couldn't even learn my multiplication tables i don't think i'm gonna be able to learn that top table me and emily tried to do math saying it was a disaster i won't i'm not even fronting um what are some more emily you want to throw a distinctive in so maybe to dovetail off of what faith just said um i think in that literalism and that kind of taking scripture for exactly how it appears on the page as long as you're reading the correct translation of course um is this idea that like all like there's going to be a fulfillment of all aspects of covenants of promises made to Israel will come true. So that includes like all of the spiritual elements of uh, covenants, all the physical, um, all the geographical or, or anything related to location is going to come to pass exactly how it's described in scripture. And in addition to that, um, these covenant promises are only made to Israel. Um, so Israel and the church as we know it from the new Testament and as we, you know, live and operate within it today are two very separate entities. Both are, you know, like part of God's plan of redemption, but they have very different roles, um, and how we participate, um, in that plan of redemption. And so promises and prophecies in the old Testament are exclusively for Israel and don't, necessarily relate to the church which I feel like is a pretty um important and distinct tenet of dispensationalism that um I think comes up quite a bit if you're reading dispensational literature um you'll hear a lot of that in just like cultural discord <laughs> with Christians talking about like end times the role of Israel in end times the role of Israel like in this cultural moment all that kind of stuff um so you hinted at like the significance of Israel do we need to keep hitting that I I feel like even though that's just like one distinctive of dispensationalism, that might be one that just people are very familiar with. So we'll circle back to that. It also breeds more distinctive. Yes, yeah. um, for sure. All right, someone's yeah. got to talk about the rapture and it's not going to be me. <laughs> um, yeah, so kind of key to understanding um, these next few distinctives, I think would be actually defining what the dispensations are. Um, so the dispensations are defined as essentially different administrations of God in directing the affairs of the world. Um, and that's a definition from Ryrie, who is the dean of DTS Graduate School, which is one of the big proponents of dispensational theology. Um, so dispensationalists would hold that salvation has always been uh, by grace through faith. But the way, like Emily said, that God administers this grace is different. Um, so these dispensations are seen as a test that men fail and God gives grace for each one of those. And so that might be something that people who grew up in dispensationalism might be a little more familiar with, um, just in terms of how we understand the Bible to kind of be separated into different parts. Um, so those dispensations would then be innocence, conscience, um, which is the flood, Noah and the flood, government, which is Babel, uh, the promise, which is the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic law, grace, which is when um, uh, Jesus comes incarnate, and then the millennial kingdom, which refers to uh, post-rapture. 
Um, so God works through each of these dispensations um, in a very different, in a, uh, a different way to administer this grace. Um, so yeah, so this is where the rapture would then come in. Um, as Emily also mentioned before, Israel and the church are seen as different entities. Um, and so the way that God administered grace to the nation of Israel was different than how he administers grace to the New Testament church today. Um, but dispensational dispensationalism holds that God still has a specific plan um, for the nation of Israel in um, specifically. And so the rapture then is God taking his church, the New Testament church out of the world so he can um, go back to administering uh, his, his grace and that specific plan that he has for Israel. So we just got to get out of the way. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Let God get back to his real people. He can. Yeah. I feel like that's just so interesting because it's like, can God work in more than one people? I don't like, are y'all just limiting the power of God? I don't know. I think it's, I think it's that idea that it's like, the again, this the little interpretation of like Israel as God's the bad interpretation. interpretation. Yeah. It's not a bad interpretation because Israel was God's chosen people um, to incubate yeah his plan for all mankind in and we shouldn't we shouldn't ignore that or or talk uh down about that but well yeah i think that i think it just comes because i think and we'll touch on this later but how we grew up like i grew up thinking that like being like man i wonder when the last jew is gonna get saved so we can yeah. get yeah. raptured <laughs> now thinking about that i'm like that's just very specific. i i distinctly remember my mom at one point talking about is it Ben Stein, I think. He's the guy who has like the um he has like a classic. He ha he's so like iconic that there was like a character in Fairly Odd Parents based off of him. And he has wow. this really droll tone and like he talks really yeah. flat. And he did this um documentary about like was it creationism in schools or something? I don't remember. But mom, I remember dry he's Jewish. Not messianic Jewish, just Jewish. And we were driving home from church after they watched that documentary. And my mom was like, you know, he's just one of those people who I just know will be in the 144,000. Oh. He's going to get saved, <laughs> which that's not a, it's not a slight against my mom. That's just what she was taught. But I remember being like, what? Yeah. So I, I feel like dispensationalism prevented us from like actually understanding the Bible as something <laughs> that was really coherent and was a narrative, not like a recipe like, I felt like I read the Bible, and I was like, this is the ingredient for the rapture. Like, 144,000 Jews, two prophets, <laughs> um, seven bulls. And for 1,500 years. <laughs> Insert uh, toothpick to test for doneness. Test for doneness. <laughs> if the bodies of the damned, if the bodies of the damned come out screaming, it's done. <laughs> Um, oh. Okay, what, what dispensation are we on? <laughs> um, we are very out of order. <laughs> But we're I, getting through the boring stuff first, guys. Yeah, yeah. So do you want to keep talking about the seven dispensations and describing them? Or do we want to talk about historical context and where dispensationalism even came from? Mm, I guess the last thing is we I guess we could flesh out the idea of the rapture of the church a little bit more. OK. Um, but just kind of like the rapture comes from this idea that there's going to be a day that no one sees coming when all of a sudden all the Christians in the world will be raptured out of their clothes. Um, <laughs> very specifically, very we specifically. will go up naked um, <laughs> down to their contact lenses. I don't know if y'all ever read the Left Behind series, but that is ingrained in my memory. Yep. Wait, 
Seriously, it's those contact lenses. Yeah, it's those two perfect little contact lenses, like on top of their clothes that are just all yeah. crumpled. In the movie, I remember their clothes were folded. <laughs> I yeah, I remember that. <laughs> that that was so stupid. I, I don't know if it was that. they were folded in the That's book. That's what the angels come down and do after they rapture the people down. The angels come fly down. Fold so that is their whole. God call. cares about the little things. If we're talking about <laughs> contact lenses, like. About your like IUDs. Yeah, I was gonna say your IUDs like what are you, what else laid you on your folded clothes. <laughs> your used tampon is just like <laughs> those are folded inside the clothes. You know, like when you were at a sleepover and you didn't know want anyone to know you were on your period, so you were like exactly. crumpling your tampon inside of your clothes. That's what uh, it would be like. Love love that okay Man, um, I just would love to see like the piles of stuff that like come out of people's bodies like like I, I think of like like people who've had like hip replacements like just got a gonna leave a whole hip behind a pair of dentures so oh. uh I, I mean we knew someone who had like a significant amount of metal in her body like more than one like in her chest like there was another piece somewhere in her she'd just leave behind like a Bunch of metal, I guess. Butt implants. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh! If you get if you get breast implants, oh my gosh! Oh, you can't take it with you guys. <laughs> they don't teach you this in church. No one prepares you for that. <laughs> okay. Okay. So this is one thing that you touched on that I was actually thinking about today because mm-hmm. while I was trying to brush up on my dispy knowledge for this, um, was that people believe in like the rapture it like the secret rapture yes. but why do dispensationalists always try and figure out when the rapture is if they're yes. if they think it's a secret rapture like they're always <laughs> the signs they're always trying to do math and it's it's like in parks and rec where they're like that cult <laughs> is trying to predict the end of the world <laughs> they keep getting cult. it wrong yep like yeah. i just i don't know i just think that's a funny there's been a lot of like what's the word Inconsistencies. inconsistencies within yeah. dispensationalism and I don't think maybe in the theology itself but in its practice because yeah. most people don't even know they're dispensational yeah but anyways back to the rapture back to the rapture but yeah so then the church is snatched out of the world um minus all their metal pieces um and they essentially are getting rescued from this literal seven-year tribulation period which is full of Floods and fires and famines and all these terrible things. Frogs. Um, frogs. That's the worst one of them all. Um, before Jesus then comes back and establishes his literal a thousand year reign, I believe, on the earth before then a second. Is it the a thousand year reign and then the judgment and then everybody new heavens, new earth? I think yeah. it's, it's the a thousand year reign and then they and then a big battle. Like the last. Yeah. Battle. It's like Satan gets to come out again and yeah, then he's really like tossed out again. The timeline is quite confusing. Well, there's some differentiation between dispensationalists yeah, as well. Sure. Yeah. Like, I remember somebody basically was accused uh, another friend of the podcast who we shall not name, but um he replies to all of our Instagram stories is <laughs> uh, basically accused him of being kind of a heretic because he was an all-millennial. Oh, oh yeah. I, and he never came back to guest preach again after that. Yes. Anyway. Gotta go find anyways. that on the church website. Anyways. Um, okay, which, which dispensation uh, are we so? I think those are the main distinctives, though. So yeah. just in conclusion, that literal um, hermeneutic of interpreting the Bible the distinction between uh, the nation of Israel and the church, the continuing significance of uh, Israel as an ethno-political entity, 
um, and then the affirming of the pre-tribulation rapture of the church before the seven-year tribulation period, and then the fulfillment of all aspects of the covenant. Yeah. Emily, do you want to talk about the history of the origin of dispensationalism? Because you ran, have like ranted about it for like a week. I'm not ranted about it, but well, I'd no, be happy. I'd be happy to drive the boat if that's what you're asking. Please drive the boat. For sure. So dispensationalism is um, obviously a post-reformation development. Um, it was first linked um, to uh, John Nelson Darby in the 1800s. Um, and he um, was an Anglo-Irish theologian. So... Make sense of that what you will. Um, but so dispensationalism first kind of began in Europe and then made its way Europe? over to the United States. Who is Europe? <laughs> That's what you point your pancakes in the morning. Plenty of butter in Europe. <laughs> what? That doesn't make any sense. Butter in Europe. <laughs> All right. Can I start you said over? it. I'm not cutting it out. Oh, no. (laughs) Anyways, moved from Europe to the United States, where it became really, really popular. um, And it grew in popularity through conferences and, like, Bible institutes and colleges, um, particularly through D.L. Moody, um, influence of Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, lots of popular radio uh, preachers and television preachers and um, all that kind of stuff kind of, you know, furthered the spread of dispensationalism over the years. But one of the primary ways that um, the that dispensationalism became really popular, particularly in the United States, was through the Schofield Study Bible, which was obviously authored in terms of its notes and all that jazz, by C.I. Schofield um, in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Um, this homie was born in Michigan, grew up in Tennessee, a Confederate soldier who deserted to the North. Um, but what's really interesting about him is that he was a lawyer in terms of his training and practice. Um, he was a what? <laughs> he was a Europe. <laughs> <laughs> He was a lawyer in training and practice um, who was mentored by a minister, a Presbyterian minister, and through that relationship became a believer and decided to commit his life to um, the study of the Bible and eventually founded the Philadelphia School of Bible, which later became Philadelphia College of the Bible and is now known as Karn University. And... As I mentioned before, his reference Bible um, is really what caused dispensationalism to spread so um, profoundly throughout the United States. Um, And it was in this Bible that he kind of articulated those seven dispensations that we talked about, those periods of testing and and that kind of thing. So I would really attribute, like I said, the the popularity of dispensationalism and, you know, from the 1900s, obviously up to this point. Um, to like just the availability of not only this, you know, mentioned Bible, but also, like I said, those popular teachers and preachers and our radios and on our TVs, like 
you know, that's what our grandparents were watching. That's what our great, great grandparent, not our great, great, our great grandparents were watching and all that stuff. So, I mean, like, I would say in a lot of ways, this is like the fast food of like theology. Like it's the most easily accessible. It's almost like the default. Like if you don't know what you're having for dinner, you're probably going to have dispensational theology for dinner. Like you don't just like pick covenant theology is like, oh crap, someone's asking me about the end times. Like, um, I don't know, like the rapture, like there's a lot of buzzwords. And I think in a lot of ways, dispensational theology has become the, um, almost like poster of what evangelical Christianity is and what we believe. Um, even though that may not today be an accurate picture of most evangelical Christians, if that makes sense. So yeah, you might find like, maybe you still have a few French fries in your car from that night that you chose dispensational theology for dinner, even though you don't have it for dinner every night anymore. There's still some fries on your seat. Yeah, I'm constantly finding fries. In yeah, my- I found one today. I'm literally, while we were talking, I had a flashback to when a couple years ago, I like secretly admitted to myself I didn't believe in the millennial rule and was like, maybe I'm a heretic. I think what's so interesting, too, is then, like, this going off the fast food thing is if you want to leave, like, the fast food behind, you go vegan, and then you just don't have any of it. Like, I was talking to Dad today, and Dad was like, um, shit, what did he say? He said, I'm an ex-evangelical, but just for dispensationalism. (laughs) And I was like, what? And he was like, I just, and basically, he was saying what I've said before is, like, I know my eschatology was wrong because it was dispensational and but now I haven't really rebuilt anything so I'm just kind of in this weird middle space where I'm just swimming through like nothingness and I'm trying and I'm like I'll get to it eventually but you know like in the end like Jesus wins it's fine like that's my eschatology but that's like that's veganism it's it's basically just lettuce nothing of substance yeah so just really bearing my soul out here that I don't have any eschatology. <laughs> yeah. I I will say though, and a, a lot of my like reading about the history of um of dispensationalism and like some of the differences between, you know, like other other theologies and systems systems of thought, um, is that especially in the really early stages of dispensationalism, part of the cultural moment that it was coming out of was during the industrial revolution when there was a lot of new emerging technology there was a lot of transition and change happening in culture and um, people like Darby looked at that and were like holy cow like Mm -hmm. look at the cotton gin like you know Jesus must be coming back soon Um, so you know Mm -hmm. this kind of change in the times kind of gave people the kick in the pants I guess that they needed in terms of how they thought about the end times and they really assumed that the end times were coming really, really soon. And that gave them a lot of urgency in how they pursued the Great Commission, which I think is a really positive co- contribution of dispensationalism. If you look at the Industrial Revolution, there's like a lot of really good things happening, but also there's like still a lot of people like dying. There's still a lot of poverty, like things are still not going well. Culture seems to be moving forward, but like at what cost type of thing. So if culture is like almost like a sinking ship, we need to get as many people on the ship as we can. Um, so that I think is kind of what, where that, that urgency for the Great Commission comes from. And I think that that's a really positive thing 
um, that dispensationalists have contributed to the evangelical world, but that's kind of a tangent. I think that also, sorry, sharing the mic. I think that also, um, like we see that same fear, not fear of progress, but like associating progress with a slow move towards yeah. and like extinguished, um, ex- like the whole world just being over. Like we think about how many different like new advances in technology have been labeled the mark of the beast. Yeah. <laughs> just in our lifetimes. Yeah. Like in the, just like the last nine months, honestly. <laughs> in the last, well, they're all vaccines <laughs> in the last nine months. So, um, but like, chips that people put in your skin or like your phone or the internet like things just have like there's always a new mark of the beast and it's never actually the mark of the beast it's just the mark of a diet heavy and fast food I think part of that comes from the fact that with with advancement and progress and the and society and um and culture in general I think that the world I mean that in like a secular term we view that as a positive thing. We view that as um, we're becoming more enlightened. We're evolving. We are becoming the best possible version of the human race that we can be. And so by default, I feel like dispensational Christians are like, okay, if the world thinks that we're improving and we're evolving, evolving, then we must be doing worse. So therefore we're actually becoming more degenerate and, 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 you know, a more reprobate society. So that must yeah. mean that the end times are getting closer and closer and closer. Because if the world says we're doing good, then we must be doing correct. Really bad. Yeah. I also think too, one of the things with the mark of the beast thing, and this doesn't have as much to do with dispensationalism, but well, dispensationalism and fundamentalism, evangelical fundamentalism are just, they are two peas in a little pot. And um, when you have fundamentalism, you have heavy anti-intellectualism. So if, if you're, this advancement like a vaccine or something is coming f- and you believe it's being or okay well let's say the new fad is sticking a chip in your arm like and it and it like birth control yeah okay <laughs> next plan on is the mark of the beast um and <laughs> so and that's being promoted by like the intellectual like like fauci and like hillary clinton and like yale professors and stuff and like people are anti-intellectual and so they're going to say that's the mark of the beast because that's how the elites are yeah promoting the it. elites and i would so, not label hillary clinton i wouldn't either I, don't, I wouldn't either she was the first person i thought of yeah so i just think like the anti-intellectual like lean is just reject anything that is like promoted by elites in society which is like the elites in society are usually bad fair but <laughs> i mean uh, it depends on who you classify as an elite. I also wouldn't classify Dr. Fauci as an elite. I wouldn't either, but I think people consider him an elite now just because... Yeah, he's kind of a peasant. His, his face is everywhere. He probably doesn't have that much money. Watch in like five years, like a bunch of his offshore accounts will be exposed. <laughs> or he'll open like a CBD brand or something. <laughs> All right. Well, that got us a little off track, but are we are we done with historical context? I'm kind of lost. I think so, yeah. Okay. So do we want to move into cultural artifacts? Oh, boy. This, I think, will be the most fun. <laughs> Can we call it cultural toys instead? No. It's like the Sounds Happy Meal toy. Fun. No. Yeah. The toy in the bottom <laughs> of the bag. 
Okay. Well, I guess that's okay. We said this podcast is going to be sexy, Abby, and we meant it. <laughs> when did we say it was going to be sexy? At the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> oh. Anyways, who wants to talk about Left Behind? I think it should be Faith or I because we're the be only Faith, ones who yeah. read the books. Yeah. Okay. Um. So, yeah, Left Behind is probably one of the biggest cultural artifacts of dispensationalism, Um. and it's also just become a very um, accepted I guess almost kind of norm that this is like not a fiction book, but it's a nonfiction telling of history that essentially hasn't happened yet. Um, and so you see in the church, people who have read Left Behind will kind of just adopt this as eschatology or adopt it as um, a theological framework for understanding what happens in the Bible, when really this is a book written in story format by two men who are interpreting what they re- are reading in Revelation through a very specific theological framework and not by something that is, um, I guess you could say, dogmatic, fundamental truth. Um, but anyway, so yeah, Left Behind is, I believe it was an adult series first. I think there were about 12 books in it, and it starts at the very beginning of The Secret Rapture um, when all of the Christians are raptured out of the Wait. world. Why is it a secret rapture? Because everyone knows they're gone. That's, that's a genuine <laughs> yeah. question. I've never read I, it. I've never watched it. I think it's called the secret rapture because nobody knows that it's going to happen. Um, uh, so, for okay, example, okay. Um, in the very beginning of the book, I believe, I only got like 20 pages through the first, through the adult series. Um, I just couldn't do it. But the main protagonist is an airline pilot and he's on break and so I think he goes to the bathroom and when he comes back um, his co-pilot is gone and conveniently has like a little watch that has the engraved John 316 in it just so you know for sure that he's a Christian and that this isn't some other kind of apocalypse that's happening. It's not the Hindu rapture guys I promise. Yeah. They took the Christians. (laughs) So all throughout these books are basically them retelling I guess the seven years of the tribulation and how that goes on and how God is judging the world um, for everything terrible that they've ever done, basically, and also covers the, why am I forgetting? Oh, the literal Antichrist, who they believe is, (laughs) sorry, Sorry, I'm reading, um, I looked up the authors in Wikipedia because I realized I didn't know anything about them, and we'll add that later, sorry, continue, my face (laughs) was a lot, it was, yeah. So yes, they also believe that the Antichrist mentioned in Revelation is one literal man who I believe is from Romania, Russia, some European country. and yeah, like Eastern Europe somewhere. Yes. And I believe it's, I think it is just very telling of um, the time that this was written um, because a lot of the things that this Antichrist does are things that are very similar, I think, to... Um, communist or socialist ideology mm-hmm. and so yeah. I think don't we tell s- me he gives them free health care and distributes wealth as like an equal thing or something I remember no. a big part of the book was like a universal <laughs> currency yeah <gasps> universal currency so dogecoin yeah. mark of the beast mark of the beast tell me I'm wrong dogecoin is the mark of the beast I might um, become dispensational from this podcast. I'll be honest. <laughs> but yeah, so that's the adult series. And then they conveniently, because they didn't want to leave children out of this, they wrote like a 40, 40 book 
um they're short they're like 100 pages each but a 40 book version where it follows instead (laughs) yes quite Um, long it is yeah by the time you finish reading it though the rapture will have probably happened though so that's oh yeah or you're old enough to make your (laughs) salvific decision because children are raptured anyways right yeah oh yeah good point all the Um, kids all the kids i think it's the cutoff is eight so if you're any older than that your middle school week is screwed yeah you guys are all which makes perfect sense (laughs) the tribulation um but yeah, so that is the Left Behind series. Also, I just think it's important to note that I read like 30 of the kids' books when I was a child um, because I thought that... You read the kids' ones? I did. Did you it, read the adult ones? I read like only 20 pages. She said that at the beginning. <laughs> Sorry, well, I didn't It's okay. Catch she was on. distracted by Tim LaHaye's face, so... <laughs> it's getting worse. <laughs> Anyways. But, but yeah, and I think something just that is very um that's just a hallmark of the left behind series is it instills a lot of fear for obvious Mm -hmm. reasons um and there is something to fear about god's judgment of course um if you don't have god's grace um but i think it is very interesting that these are books that are specifically marketed to kids and without giving them any foundation for understanding the grace of god um or the salvation of god and like in the books, for example, there's this one kid who's both his parents, I think, go to hell because they are killed in like car crashes because the car drivers were Christians who were raptured. And this poor and this poor kid um, finds this out, becomes saved, but like, I, would I think not be saved. <laughs> I know, I know. And yeah. I, then I think two weeks later, a building crashes down on him because of some natural catastrophe and another one of the protagonists finds him and like holds his hand as he dies and so I'm reading this as a 10 year old and like every morning for like the next month I wake up thinking oh my gosh am I really saved because of the rapture happens and I'm not saved I'm gonna end up like this poor kid yeah Yeah. I was like when I got like in that middle school I remember being I don't want to be like oh I was left home alone a lot but like sometimes all my siblings would just like not be around and I'd be like did everybody just get raptured did everybody just get raptured it's very scary um, I I used to like be afraid back to the clothes thing I used to <laughs> take my showers as quickly as I could because I was terrified that if I got raptured that I because there's a verse about like it's in the scriptures I think it's in the old testament it's like keep your clothes near you essentially it's talking to Israel basic but it, I was like oh no what if I get raptured like I'm gonna float up in the air like butt naked and I just I want that and so I would take like five minute showers it probably explains the state of my hair back then but oh my god it's funny that you are were such a bad dispensationalist back then thinking that anything said to Israel would relate to you a gentile I know right um I would love to cover some of Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins hijinks because I just googled them and now I'm disturbed um so Jerry B. Jenkins is dead so there is one sense of don't speak ill of the dead, but also nothing can hurt him now. Um, he's written a ton of books. Um, he, wait, is it Jenkins who's dead? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, think yeah. Tim LaHaye is also Is dead. Tim LaHaye also dead? Are they both dead? I think so. Hang on. Oh, I'm old. Hang on. Oh, yeah. No, they are both dead. No. LaHaye is dead. I don't know if okay. Jenkins is dead. Jenkins are oh, how to turn tables. No, he's not dead yet. Okay, so LaHaye is dead. My bad. He died when he was 90. He was wow. quite old. Jenkins is says it's he's 71. 
He said that, but can we really trust him? What are you looking at, Faith? There's a lot of Jerry B. Jenkins in the world. <laughs> I looked up a picture of Jerry B. Jenkins, and it's like 10 different people. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, so Tim LaHaye, among other things, so uh, let me give you all his. He was very anti-Catholic, which that makes sense. Oh. Um, he also, I believe, he he studied at Bob Jones Western uh, Seminary and then Liberty. Wait, so, this is Jenkins. Yeah, this is LaHaye. LaHaye. So this is he like studied at Liberty. I think for like his PhD, what is D dot lit? A doctorate of literature. Yeah, so he that's where he got that. A D shit. That's what we got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So are um, uh, no cursing rules going to He he that the trifecta of dispensationalism and fundamentalism right there. Um and then he also <gasps> served as a what are you looking oh, at? No, 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 no. Oh, I don't want to share this. That makes me sad. Jerry B. Jenkins' oh, no. son is the guy who wrote wrote slash directed so. is directing the chosen. The chosen. That's crazy. That is wild. Wow. We I mean, love to see a no glow one, up, though. Yeah, no one is a product of their ch- yes. of their parents. Yes. Just most people. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> also, okay. He also served as a pastor in Pumpkintown, South Carolina. And then- <laughs> 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 called Pumpkintown. Um, he. Oh my gosh, Tim LaHaye's book, The Rapture was released on June 6, 2006, in order to capitalize on a 666 oh Um, He gave almost $5 million to Liberty to build mm-hmm. a student center and school of prophecy, which I think is really interesting. A what? School of prophecy. Um, somebody else can Google that. Um, anyways, what I really want to get into is he wrote a book in 1978 called The Unhappy Gaze. <laughs> Which was later retitled What Everyone Should Know About Homosexuality. The book called Homosexuals, Wikipedia is not being PC here, Militant, Organized, and Vile. Uh, yeah, so that's interesting. He believed in the Illuminati and that they were secretly engineering world affairs, um, which is not surprising. So moving on to Jerry B. Jenkins, um, he was a sports writer, apparently. Which is crazy. Fitting. But what the only thing I want to hit on Jenkins, because he's way more boring, is when asked about his denomination, Jenkins also often answered Jesus Christ. <gasps> Which is just so That's funny. That's exactly what the church we went to was like. Yep. Yep. So non-denominational people, Baptists do like dispensationalism. Um, I read an article today about how Paige Patterson forced dispensationalism onto the SBC. Okay, but, well, we're talking about the SBC. We'll get into that another decade. That's but a different not, podcast that we're saving for the tribulation. Yeah. <laughs> we are actually one of the bulls of judgment. You have to listen to us talk. We are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I'll get it. Uh, yeah, so that's just, um, and then there's a whole very long section about anti-Catholic sentiments, which I'm not going to read all of because it's, it's very unkind. <laughs> He called one of the popes Archpriest of Satan, though. So, um, and compared him to Judas. So that's the guys who le- wrote Left Behind. And I read all I read almost all of the adult series in in like a week. Wait, are you okay? <laughs> Obviously not. 
Like, I don't know if y'all, like, looked at me or talked to me recently, but, like, there's something off, and I'm blaming it on them. But, yeah, so let's move on to some more cultural artifacts, because I'm getting sweaty. I, wait, can what happened to the School of Prophecy? Can oh, you yeah. find that out? The LaHaye School of Prophecy. Also, this is a side note. Didn't Caitlin Chess go to DTS? She did. I wonder if she's dispensational. Caitlin, if you're listening. I don't think she is anymore. <laughs> would why did you say DTS? Mm-hmm. Would YWAM even be considered dispensational? What no, oh, DTS, Dallas Theological, Theological Seminary. Seminary. Oh, well, I'm sorry that Christianity all uses the same acronyms. <laughs> Abby true. just dated a YWAMer once. <laughs> I guess they'd scrub the internet about the school of prophecy. Ugh, mm-hmm. That's so unfortunate. We should go that's do some such independent a investigation. Uh, wow, that's wild, man. Make a note to ask our non-relative who works there about it. I'm curious. School prophecy, okay. Yeah, seriously. Oh, yeah, good idea. Um, Let's move into... Also, real quick, I just wanted to point out that... Was it Jenkins who said that the gospel or LaHaye who, need, who needed uh, to be spread to the innermost of the earth? <laughs> it was Jenkins. Into... The innermost. Into the lava. <laughs> I don't know... The, the Atlanteans and the stone people penetrate must- the earth with the gospel. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, Do you really let- think God is proud of you? Do you? <laughs> Do you really? I don't know if he's proud of me, but God is a fr- Jesus is a friend of sinners. I've been reading gentle and lowly. God is not proud or pleased. I just love to say. Well, God's forgiving. <laughs> I'm going to spend more of that grace all about. Okay. Israel. Okay. Um, Pro-Israel propaganda. Pro-Israel propaganda. That kind of goes more with geopolitical implications, which is a whole separate paragraph that I made. So maybe we should talk about Christian nationalism. But that also save, is geopolitical. We can save pro-Israel for last. Let's talk about the rap- rapture more. Tribulation and rapture. Tribulation. Can I please talk about... Please talk about um, that quote that we read the other day from our old church. Oh. Where, <laughs> yeah, do. please do, because I don't remember what you're talking about, so you don't uh, have to remind me. I'm not going to read it directly, because I don't want to plagiarize, and I also don't want to call this person out, but... Um, he would just put it in his next sermon. And it's just a very old quote, but basically, like, we we went through and found that all of the sermons that our church preached from, like, 20, 2004 on are transcribed online, and we... We went through Revelation for two years, the book of Revelation for two years. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, like maybe a month on each letter to the church or maybe like a month on Revel, like the last chapter of Revelation. No, we went through every verse week by week. And the like description, this is why I never read Left Behind. And this is why I never even read the book of Revelation after this was because this series scarred me so (laughs) badly because he was describing he was describing a lot of like the things that you see in Left Behind. Like he said, you know, borders will disappear. There will be a universal currency. Someone will. He, I think he said Russia. Like there will be a yes. specific, like the Antichrist will rise up out of Russia. Um, and he talked about they were definitely pre-trib. He, they talked. That was a little bit of a. He was like, you can be post-trib, but we are here are pre-trib. Which was like, okay, good. This uh, <laughs> means I get out of here before all this crap goes mm-hmm. down. Um. And, you know, a literal 1,000-year rule. And I don't – do you guys remember how weird it was? Like, he was talking about how, like, 
there will be children born during the like the millennial oh. rule, but like they won't all be Christian, so some of them will yes. die and go to hell. And I was like, what is the point of this? I I think I was in preteen worship for this. That's so nice. and I I think so I was just like in my own head, <laughs> like there was not listening. The one sermon that I remember the most vividly that I found and read to them was when he's describing one of the bull judgments, I think, or one of the plagues where the ocean turns to blood, mm. and he basically. And I'm going to use the adjectives he uses. He he describes it. it it's, the verse talks about how the ocean turns into the blood of a dead man. And he basically told us there is no reason not to take this literally. And he starts using adjectives to describe the blood of a dead man, which are coagulated and they stink and it's dark and it's like it's rotten and decaying. And then he goes and he starts describing all of the ocean life that are choked by this dead, this dead black blood and wash up onto the shores and like <laughs> I remember I was I don't know 14 and I was just like what the hell <laughs> like what kind of god is this <laughs> yeah and that was just that wasn't even halfway through the series but oh and that was the eschatology that we all four grew up with because we all four went to the same church rest in peace our years that could have been full of good theology and better mental dark health. fetid <laughs> black rotten blood yeah um, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like there's just this big highlight of, like, there's gonna be tribulation, but you won't have to be mm-hmm. there if you get saved. So and, make sure you're saved. Yeah, and so, first of all, that's, like, what are you getting saved for? Like, to, like, know and love the guy, the Lord who saved you, or, like, to just get out of tribulation? And also, too, I think it highlights just this fact of, like, avoiding suffering which is literally not what the christian life is about and and i think and then there was also though this weird thing of like but you know be prepared to like suffer for your faith and like um you know like be shot in school because you say you believe in god like there's also like even though the tribulation like we we were supposed to be raptured um like there's still gonna be like because it's that same narrative of like culture is degrading yes and so yeah. we should be continually persecuted and so they also talk about the two prophets mm, is that yeah. the word that's used prophet yes who are slaughtered and then come back to life and then um it's there's a lot of talk about martyrdom and just like death in general and the whole book of revelation you know john is the last living apostle so that kind of starts off on that mm. foot but like we all kind of were operating under even though we're going to miss the worst of it we're still going to get a pretty bad time yeah but like your main goal is still to avoid suffering like avoid at all costs as much as you yeah yeah like only suffer for big things that are really dramatic and they'll put in like a book one day or Mm -hmm. in a flyleaf song yeah do not slander flyleaf in front of me i love flyleaf but just that's a cultural artifact of something i don't know what yeah no that is interesting and i think like you kind of see like claire said the impact that it has on that theology of suffering um because i think i mentioned this a while back but there's a verse in revelation where it talks about like because of your faith um you'll be saved out of this specific thing and so christians who believe in dispensationalism have taken that to mean that christians because of the rapture will be um taken out of the tribulation so it's almost like it's like a treat um (laughs) like a reward (laughs) it's like a reward uh for your salvation essentially and your faithfulness on earth is that you get like a get out of jail free card for the tribulation um 
But I mean, that is so contrary to everything that we see in the Bible, everything we see in the New Testament about how life in Christ is we share in the sufferings of Christ. Um, and we continue to yeah, experience suffering in this life. And that's not something that we should seek to avoid necessarily, because in that we're able to share in Christ's sufferings. Um, yeah. So yeah, so I think that's an interesting thing that has come out of dispensationalism. Yeah. I feel like we could do a whole podcast on like, bad theologies of suffering and also like the glamorization of martyrdom in like the yes. 90s and early 2000s get ready to be shot in maybe school. maybe creating <laughs> martyrs out of people who are not martyrs yeah so. or like be prepared to die for your faith and then like they don't prepare you for anything else that's hard about being a christian like yeah. you know like i wish dying for my faith was the hardest part about being a christian <laughs> yeah like no one prepares you for like abby had a difficult not a difficult conversation but abby had a conversation with her coworker the other day explaining parts of like being a christian and <laughs> which she the girl verbatim said she's a unitarian universalist and so we yes, were like girl. looking for like common ground about what we believed about the world and she said like i just don't believe you know that god is that jesus or so, she didn't say who but he's going to come back from the dead and we're all going to float up into the air and I was like well I also do not believe we're going to float up into the air <laughs> good news yeah but so sorry, like I people people don't prepare you for those conversations except to evangelize them not that that was yes. a harder unpleasant one yeah yeah and people people don't prepare you for any like low level suffering they only prepare you like I've I've thought about that a lot is no one prepares you for like the low level suffering of re realizing that like a sibling or a close friend is not actually a believer yeah. or like no one prepares you for the low level suffering of like people leaving the church um or even like I, I would say like high level suffering of like people being abused and like and things like that no one prepares you for that they just are like the only suffering you're going to face is explicitly because of your faith and it will be you are ostracized because you wear a what would jesus do bracelet the low level suffering of working in ministry yeah uh, no one prepares you for that um anything else we have to say about tribulation and rapture emily i got nothing <laughs> faith um, do we want to talk about the idea of the rapture just in general just like what where that came from because i guarantee you some of our users are probably like why is this is in the bible oh yeah but mm. it's it's just one verse isn't it yeah it's, i think it's the verse about how we will be taken up into the air yeah yep. to meet the Lord in the air yeah um, and, and then there's the other verse i think it's in another book or in another chapter at least where it says like it will happen in like the twinkling of an eye and like yes there will be two people doing one thing and then there will be one <laughs> yeah. and I don't remember oh, what yeah. the thing yeah. was so there's like a couple of passages that are always pointed to but then mm -hmm. I was read I've been reading through the old or the new testament and I came across that like there will be one person doing or there will be two people doing one thing and then there will only be one and I'm like that doesn't mean that there's a rap like like how could you just blindly just pull out like rapture from that so Emily or Faith you. are the ones who kind of, I think, have a origin story for rapture. This is all you, Faith. Oh, boy. we don't we don't have to break it down. Go bestie. I just wanted to make that point because we're kind of approaching this yeah. podcast, assuming that most people who are listening to it have tenets of dispensationalism that are mm -hmm. very deeply ingrained in the theology. And I just wanted to let you know the rapture is one of them and you, yeah. it doesn't have you don't have to believe in it. Yeah. <laughs> If it's you not, do, it's not a tenet of orthodoxy. Yeah, it's, it's not in the Nicene Creed. It's not in the Apostles' Creed, period. and it's actually not held by the majority of the uh, Christian world. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's pop off, sis. That is definitely the most important thing about um, 
belief in the rapture or tribulation. Like, not that there's anything necessarily wrong with if that is your interpretation of how you understand revelation or how you understand your Mm -hmm. eschatology. But I think the issue is like, especially, I think especially in the South, but even just in America in general, we see how widespread dispensationalism is. And because it's just become the norm understanding, it's almost been adopted as like, this is Orthodox Christian belief. So like, Mm -hmm. if you truly believe that Jesus came, died, rose again, um, and is also going to rapture all of these Christians out of the world. And there's no room for people who are reading the Bible and are saying things like, hey, I don't think that this is literal. I think Uh that there can be a different interpretation to that. And so I think understanding that you can still be a faithful Christian and still believe in the inerrancy of scripture um, without holding or ascribing to the tribulation and the literal rapture. Yeah. Mm. We should have said that first. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Um, you can also be a faithful Christian and be a dispensationalist. We just four, yes. the four of us personally <laughs> believe you're wrong. <laughs> we'll just hold you at like our, one or two. We just want to have coffee and talk. Yes. <laughs> no, I Forcefully. don't. <laughs> Forcefully, insistently, and you can't leave the room until you're a covenant theologian. Also, there are degrees of dispensationalism. For yes. sure. And I think what Faith is saying is, is so true. People read the Bible and they interpret it in their own special way because one interesting thing about the church now, particularly in the West, is like everybody is a theologian. Everybody can interpret the Bible the way they want. Um, and that's like not the case because not all of us have the training. Hello. Mm-hmm. So we're interpreting from our already translated. So there's some like probably a little bit of flaws as much as I love my ESV. Like I'm not saying it is as inerrant as the Greek in the Hebrew. Um, so and even still- then... Yeah, so there's already, like, this this step of, like, there could be some mess-ups here because I don't know if everybody who is on this board is, is – they're not God. And then you're reading it, and you read it through lenses. And so people say – when they say the scripture isn't there, they say the text is clear. But <laughs> – like, you're not saying scripture's in there. You're saying your interpretation of scripture yeah. is in there. You yeah. see that when you discuss things like complementarianism. You see that when you discuss eschatology. It's like, oh, well, I believe the Bible's in there. Like, so that's why I believe this. And since you believe no, something No, you different, believe the Bible is literal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. There is a yeah. difference. Yeah. People are like, the text is clear. And then the text is like congealed blood. And you're like, <laughs> is that clear? I don't know. I don't know. I hope that's allegorical because <laughs> I don't I don't know about that. I'm drinking this drink that has like aloe vera chunks in it right now. <laughs> Ew! Picture <laughs> <laughs> swimming through that texture <laughs> like on my way to the next tribulation. <laughs> Ew. Uh, anything else about that before? I'm just going to get into geopolitical implications because <laughs> I'm excited about it. Um, just briefly, I think another thing that kind of goes along with this idea of rapture and tribulation is the idea that um, even though we might not explicitly think that our ideas about the rapture and tribulation affect other areas of the Christian life, they do. Um, And I want to bring up something that Emily had talked about before is how um, there's kind of this rhetoric for dispensational dispensationals who believe that the world is going to get progressively worse and worse um, and and essentially that the world is going to hell and so we should expect to see that Um, and there's and not that we shouldn't do anything about it but that we shouldn't be like completely broken over the brokenness of the world because we see that this is God's 
ideal plan for the world. And I think that we see the implications of that in the way that Christians choose to engage in things like social justice, um, for example. And I think that that's really interesting because um, obviously if you believe that you're that you will be raptured out of this world or that the world is going to get progressively worse and worse. You don't have as much of um, an internal motivation to want to love your neighbor outside of this world or to make the world better or to um, kind of step in and engage in the culture. Um, instead, you're going to see it more as this culture is bad, culture is going to hell. And so we want to save as many people as we can out of that culture, but we're not necessarily trying to go into the culture and be salt and light in the world mm -hmm. um, and help people who might not be saved, but still showing them the love of God and showing that in a very tangible way too. Yeah. So true, Busty. That's all I got. Awesome. Yeah. Amen. Faith That's is, why this stuff was important, not just because we like to pick at the left behind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, man, <laughs> but we do love to do that. We do love to pick. Um. <laughs> so I'm gonna. So this is kind of hit like pro-Israel propaganda and like kind of into Christian nationalism. But I wanted to talk about the geopolitical implications of dispensationalism, which is a lot of. Those are three big words. Um, it starts out in the notes. It says the U.S. gives a buttload of money to Israel, like a lot. <laughs> My notes are really professional. My reasons include guilt over the Holocaust. <laughs> Let me expound on these things, please. <laughs> please expound on buttload. Let me make the text clear. <laughs> Let me make the text clear. Not my buttload. That wouldn't be a lot. Like, <laughs> I can't say this person's name, but y'all can guess who I would have said. Um, so a lot of the stuff I got, someone just posted their dissertation on the interwebs. Um, well, that's usually what happens. Yeah, but it's someone named Aaron William Stone, and he's now a doctor. Good for you. Um, but he talked about dispensationalism and U.S. foreign policy with Israel. And this is actually really, really helpful. And I looked at, like, a couple other, like, random articles from, like, New York Times and stuff. But, yeah, one of the big implications of dispensationalism is the U.S. gives a ton of money to Israel and it's kind of sometimes unspecified why like we'll be like we're gonna give you two billion dollars so that you can beef up your military to like protect peace and it's like what does that even mean um and so yeah or they'll say like we're promoting democracy because they're a democracy um or like we feel bad that so many of them were murdered in the holocaust and that was a real reason that m multiple people gave which I thought was just crazy and then, like, they're the stronghold in, around, surrounded by, like, Islamic countries. And so... I wonder why they're surrounded by Islamic countries. It's almost like they took the Islamic countries. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just don't... I'm just yeah. Um, <laughs> so, in the words of Jerry Falwell Sr., um, Christians must continue their undying support for Israel. So this was, oh, undying, undying. So this was a big tenet of the religious right. Um, if you are fighting in the culture war, you said abortion, bad, gays, bad, Israel, good. Um, and that was your thing. Um, and a lot Still of other is your thing, a lot of other things were bad too. Um, so people said, okay, ha, I'm a Christian and I live in America. I, I have to give my undying support to Israel. So how do I do that? Um, America was one of is one of the biggest powers in the in the world now. Um, so people did it by lobbying. They gave a ton of money. Um, 
pro-Israel uh, political action committees give like so much money to politicians. It's crazy. I, there was like charts and like pie charts in this art in this guy's dissertation. It was fascinating. Um, and he also listed several instances of like politicians who were not openly pro-Israel losing ra like political races, um, which is also crazy. Uh, so going back into the early 2000s, so a roadmap for peace was proposed in 2002 to settle like the Israel-Palestine conflict. That did a really good job, obviously. Obviously. Um, and that was sarcasm. Yes. Um, Backslash S. Yeah. And dispensationalists were actually really mad about this because they were like, <laughs> Israel is moving off the West Bank. Like mm -hmm. Israel's retracting, not expanding the way the Bible said it is. Like, like the, the we must make what the Bible says will happen under the sovereign power of God, no matter what we do as humans happen. Yes. Yeah. Dispensationalism like, really be looking at the globe and be like, this is a game of risk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a great description. So they, it, so it was retracting and not expanding, and so there was a really big public outcry to Bush, to, and this is the quote: "Honor Israel's covenant with God." Like that's the American president who is probably not a Christian. Like that's his. Hey, Let's talk about don't say that, Bush. <laughs> Sorry, okay. sorry. Some uh, of us are 9-11 kids. That was like the last good politician. That hurts. Okay, the that last hurts. good politician was John McCain, and we all know that. Yeah, that's true. Um, May he rest in really, really deep peace. Uh, the innermost of the earth. <laughs> <laughs> the innermost peace. Um, so, yeah, people were saying, like, this president of a secular country, except people don't believe America is secular, except you do if you're dispensational and you're trying to rescue mm -hmm. the culture. So there's another inconsistency to honor Israel's covenant with God. Like we have to interact in the timeline. No, you don't. This isn't like Marvel. Like you can't move things around by your own power. Um, and then one of the big proponents of dispensationalism was a book called Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. It was released in the early 90s, I think. And he basically was one of the big proponents of like comparing current world events to biblical prophecy and being like, okay, this is happening and this is what the Bible says and this is actually what the Bible says and it's happening now. It is now. It is happening now. Um, Put your <laughs> pieces on the risk board. Yeah, yeah. He, he said, keep your clothes close to you. <laughs> and Got it. And, and so the... Um, I actually only shower with clothes on. <laughs> I am a never nude. <laughs> I am like Tobias. Jean Parmesan. <laughs> <laughs> May Barbara Walters rest in peace in the internet. Amen. Barbara Amen. Walters and John McCain are having a martini right now. I know it. Um, so, yeah. So, Hal Lindsey said, compare the current world events to biblical prophecy. And Aaron, our guy Aaron, says, thus reaffirming what dispensationalists have been wanting to hear. The end is near, and modern political happenings are in accordance with these prophecies. So, if you think that a country like Egypt or... Um, another country is not doing just like normal like nation state things like trying to like take power and like make more money and drill for oil and like do nation state things and instead are doing like bible things like acting as an enemy of god's chosen people you're gonna take dra like drastic action you're gonna like lobby for war you're gonna like lobby to move embassies you're gonna lobby for these things and a lot of dispensationalists shockingly have a lot of money like i think I, we think of a dispensationalist now as like, oh, like, you know, I, I can't say that word. I always want to say that word on the podcast. 
Um, but like, you know, like little dinky, like Southern Baptist church um, in like, you know, uh, Orlando, Tennessee or whatever. And it's like, well, back then dispensation, like dispensationalism is still so huge, but like it's, it's the elites who have this money and they say, all right, uh, go take care of Israel. So that's where we get so much pro-Israel pop propaganda that is not even spiritual. It's purely political. And if you flip that on its head, that also would explain a lot of the like sentiment towards, like, like you said, if a country is, you know, actively anti God's plan, mm -hmm. so, or actively act, you know, we, we look at Palestine, which is not a country, yeah. but the dispensationalists consider them anti God's plan. So they are moving, they move against them, but also if any country that acts against God's plan, like China, yeah, like, or Russia, like they're, they're going to make moves against them as well until yeah. China or Russia gets in their pocket. Yeah. And what's so interesting is like, what does it mean to move against God's plan? Is it just when you're like actively attacking Israel, like Palestine, or can you move against God's plan? Question. Ooh, that's the tea. Like, I, th I think one of the big proponents of dispensationalism that's missing is like the highlight of God's sovereignty. Like God doesn't need you. God doesn't need your little grubby hands in the timeline. Get out. Like, get out of the room. <laughs> Go home. In the words Remove of our good sandwich. friend, John. From the narrative. Um, so, yeah. So that kind of explains, like, how pro-Israel propaganda in churches, or I hope it explains, is so weirdly political. And it's, like, very, like, America needs to do this. not Or, like, the church needs to do this. But the church actually just means America in that context. Um, because, you know, what does your little church in little, like, Jolton or Springfield or Cooperstown have like instead you're really talking about America and as Americans and as Christians like you need to stand for Israel and and the thing is like I would venture to say like is Israel as a nation state a a God is that God's chosen people mm. wasn't there a dispersion mm. like and this is one thing that our dad always brought up <laughs> at church with <laughs> people who went to this very dispensational church who were very dispensational, he'd be like, so what happens if like someone who, like an Arab becomes like president of Israel? Like, are we still gonna like go, be like, go Israel? Like, what are the practical implications of this? And our dad is a very practical person. So I, I <laughs> you can't say that. <laughs> so I think that's really helpful, but it's true. Like, it, do we view Israel as God's chosen people and a nation state? Like, obviously, they are God's chosen people. We know that. But, like, what are the practical implications of them becoming a nation state? And also, mm -hmm. so late in the game, you know, like, that was recent, at least in terms of, like, modern nation states. Faith had an article pulled up for a while. Oh. I'm so sorry, okay, Faith. No, um, that's all I had to say, because I don't even think I have the brain capacity connected to Christian nationalism anymore. <laughs> Um, so this kind of does go into Christian nationalism, actually. Yeah. Um, but one thing I want to um, kind of touch on a little bit before kind of goes back to just how we see that dispensationalism has defined Israel now as this ethno-political entity that is separate from the church. Um, whereas in the Old Testament, like we saw that obviously Israel was the people of God, but dispensationalists seem to assume that Israel has always been ethnically pure, which if we look back mm -hmm. into the Old Testament, um, what do you do with people like Ruth? What do you do with people like Rahab, um, who were clearly mm -hmm. engrafted into the people of God? And what made them the people of God was not that they were um, ethnically an Israelite, but it was that they believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Um, and so I think that's super important and that has implications um, for the church today that I'm not going to go into, but I mean, I'm going to assume you can make those connections for yourself. If you can't make the connections, <laughs> just ask um, us personally. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be a long coffee date. Um, but there, I have a Rolling Stone article, funnily <laughs> enough, but there is a lot of interesting things in here and it specifically talks about how um, it defines Trump as an end times president. <laughs> And I'm not going to go into all of this, but you see that a lot of um, the policies that Trump was supportive of were policies that were supportive of the nation of Israel. Um, and so I really just want to read this quote by Mike Pence, actually. Um, and the quote is, okay, so it says, Pence has likewise catered to the rapture theology idea that America's fate is tied up with that of Israel. And then Pence's quote is, we stand with Israel because we cherish that ancient promise that Americans have always cherished throughout our history, that those who bless her will be blessed. Um, and so I think you see a little bit of a, yeah, I mean, you see a lot of just bad. <laughs> we all just did the Nathan and Karma sharp inhale of disapproval. That's usually directed at me. <laughs> yeah, and there's just like at least three, maybe four bad connections about that right off the bat. Um, only, but you see a lot of... Um, yeah, so I think that's a big reason also why you see why Christian or American Christians um, are so set on the success of Israel as a nation, because if we support them and if they're being blessed, then by association, the nation of America will also be blessed. Um, so we're doing this in part. So for our own gain, mm -hmm. for our own blessing. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think, I think and it, to, to dovetail on that too, I think a lot of politicians have used that ideology to manipulate a lot of like evangelical Christians into, you know, following certain conservative agendas. And I think that, you know, making ourselves so susceptible to that by holding these ideologies so high and so important is is kind of dangerous and and really creates a lot of space for um people who are not of god to come in and manipulate yeah. you into things yeah. that like are not related to the church are not related to the kingdom of god and ultimately like literally not related to the end times at all yeah i think um i think it just reveals like kaylin chess talks about this like a very small like political imagination and like spiritual or like theological imagination and I would even say historical imagination because like if you operate within like the boundaries of like a country has to function as a nation state and like or else it's not a country like there's things going on in Spain there's things going on in Ireland like pay attention and like you'll see that there are peoples who believe themselves to be a country and are not given like that you know nation state power and even Israel itself for a long time was operating as not a nation state, but as a people who were being dominated. So were they not a country then like that was legitimate? So I think it just reveals like not only we know often that dispensationalists have a small political and theological imagination or it's quite narrow. Maybe it's long. It's not wide. Um, but also historically. Um, because you, you focus your history on just like a few specific things. And I think that's just, that limits your ability to think creatively about 
like you're just really gonna stick to one narrative of the end times and not explore any other that's so boring I think also in terms of like viewing the bible as a whole I think this is again where those dispensations I think kind of come back to bite you in the butt because if you look at the bible as a cohesive story like how has God intended Israel to function as his people in the old testament like they're a very um what's the word uh unassuming people group throughout like most of scripture and I don't think that God's plan based on what I've read of the Bible was ever for Israel to become this national leader that um kind of takes over the Middle East so to speak um that doesn't really seem consistent with um the meek type of people God chooses to work through in redemptive history and I don't really think that he's like going to necessarily change that for the rest of this redemptive history. Um, so I think that's, again, like I said, just where reading the Bible as a whole story and, you know, like from beginning to end, how that is a very united and cohesive narrative is helpful, whereas dispensations might uh, make that feel a little bit disjointed and might help. It might. It, I think it you lose some of that. Um, connectedness, um, not just in like terms of the story on a whole, but in how um, like even you can relate to the story of the Bible because like I myself and and the way that I view how I interact in redemptive history, like I'm a nobody. Like God is not using like these powerhouse people. Like he continually chooses people who are of little to no reputation to do incredible things for the kingdom of God. And I think that that is a pattern of the Bible that, you know, will persist throughout the rest of redemptive history. So, yeah. And I think that's kind of the last point, which we can wrap up here. Although I do want to make one disclaimer after we do wrap up. Um, But the dangers of literalism and just the idea of like, to have a disconnected narrative of the Bible. So you know, even though dispensationalism, it affects most people's like, just they feel it only affects their eschatology. Like that's how I viewed it for a long time. It actually affected every area of my mm-hmm. like walk with God and my faith. And I think I told you guys this when we were reading like sermons, like I, I had no idea, like I was too scared to think about like in times in life and even in how my relationship with my friends and how evangelism and how all of these tenets of what it meant to be a believer connected because everything was so wrapped up in this belief that there was a God who literally wrote down every way he was going to kill non-believers in pools of black blood. Yeah. <laughs> Which is his right. And um, I also believe God's wrath is a great thing and can be done in great ways. But that's um, uh, just, that's another topic for another day. But you know, what you believe about how things end and how things begin really it really does affect how you walk in in the in-between. So yeah. also I did want to make like a small like side comment. Um, Christians are called to care for the oppressed and the marginalized. And I do believe that uh, Jews are, have been oppressed and marginalized, mm-hmm. you know, forever, uh, basically. Um, and I do think that as the church, as Gentiles in the church, it is our responsibility to care for them um, and to make sure that they're, you know, protected like any other people group. I do not think that means creating a nation state that takes mm-hmm. from the original people who were there or like by giving them extra money or anything like that. But I did want to make it clear, like 
we're not advocating for the erasure of the people no. of Israel. No. Just maybe the geopolitical complications that pop yeah. up when you talk yeah. about the nation. Yeah. So I think it's just so interesting because like people go to like Christians like go to Israel all the time and like I just I find it so fascinating that we're so obsessed with like it and but and yet we know very little like history about like the Jewish people like we know like Holocaust oh dang like if you're really if you know a lot you went to the museum and you cried Mm -hmm. um not dissing you if you want to talk us, we see my what I want to go. But like it's it's just our our I don't know, it's just so sad that like you limit your opinions, I guess, about a people to like just a couple of things. And then you go to Israel and it's like not to learn about like these people. It's like to walk where Jesus walked. Oh. Which is great. Like you're walking where Jesus walked every day because you're you're in union with him. He's in you. <laughs> Like you walk with him every day, go, bro. He walks Sometimes- with me and talks with me. <laughs> it was at that time that I carried you. Was that <laughs> <laughs> it was at that time that you were not there because you were <laughs> raptured. <laughs> there was uh, only one set of footprints and uh, a set of contact lenses <laughs> and an IUD. All right. Um. So, okay, I think we've already gone quite a while. I don't have anything yeah. to say anymore. Um, Faith, did you want to wrap up anything since you're our special guest? Um, Most special? I I guess just one last thing that I'd like to say is dispensationalism kind of does offer a very disconnected narrative of the Bible. Um, and while I think that there can be good things that can be drawn from that, I think there are it's important to first of all acknowledge that that's not the only way to interpret the story of the Bible. And also that um, just as I've been kind of growing out of dispensationalism and um, looking into different ways that the story of God um, has unfolded um, specifically in covenant theology, I think there's just a lot of beauty to be seen um, in the way that God has written the story of the Bible. And Mm -hmm. I think that we do ourselves a disservice to just understanding the character and the beauty of our God when we limit ourselves to a very narrow understanding of interpreting the story of the Bible. Um, And so I would just encourage you if I, I think there's a lot of fear surrounded this surrounding stepping outside of a very dispensational interpretation of the Bible because it's all that we've ever known. Um, But just because it might be something that you've grown up with, or it's the only thing that, uh, you've ever been exposed to doesn't mean that it is the only way of honoring God through reading the Bible. And um, yeah, and I just think that's important. Yeah. So. Covenant theology is is confusing, but it's very, and dispensationalism isn't. <laughs> well, yeah, that's one thing. People are like dispensationalism. The text is clear. And then they use a word that is not in the Bible at all. <laughs> like Dispensation rapture. or rapture. Yeah. Which I know, like, the word Trinity is in the Bible, but I just think that's always so funny. But it's, covenant theology is very rich, and, like, mm-hmm. it just feels like having a sip of water on, like. After a big thing of french fries. Yeah. And a McChicken <laughs> and a medium Sprite with an And apple an apple pie. pie. <laughs> <laughs> Which is Emily's daily lunch. <laughs> McDonald's sponsor us. All right. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for listening. And just a reminder that you are welcome to slide into our DMs anytime. You're welcome to follow us on Twitter. (laughs) Slide into our DMs to chat about what we said.
Yeah. Um, this podcast is for friends and family, but if you know someone who you think would benefit from it, feel free to share. Maybe unless you think that you're sharing it with them so that they can diss us, in which please clear it with us first. Yeah. Um, and we have these conversations for the love of the church and the life of the world. Is that what I said? I have no idea. But yeah. And we love people and God. Yeah. So thanks for going on this road trip with us and Faithy, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.